have two more Sundays in the green season, next Sunday and uh, the uh, Feast of Christ the King. And they're kind of setups for what's to come in the season of Advent in the sense that they talk about what I'm going to talk about today, which is called eschatology. And some of you may say, oh, no, is he going to, gee. But I, I'm going to define it for you and then say what, why it's important. Uh, eschatology is a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the wor- world or of humankind, a belief concerning death, the end of the world, or the ultimate destiny of humankind, specifically any of various Christian doctrines concerning the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, or the last judgment. So these are all things that Episcopalians love to talk about all the time. But they're, they're important. So the purpose of this sermon is to maybe say some things that might maybe trouble people and some other things that uh, continue to give us hope and uh, faith in uh, God's loving action in the world. So all of these readings today from Joshua from 1 Thessalonians, and from Matthew, where we have the story of the wise and foolish virgins, or in other translations, the wise and foolish maidens. So you can pick, your, pick which one you like better, uh, who are going to a wedding. And they're all about eschatology. They're all about uh, how we understand w- what things are going to be like in the end, you know. So that's, that does have some importance. We never, hardly ever read from Joshua. When I was in seminary, of course, we learned about something, and I use the term uh, Ernest, Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books. But there were still some people around in Old Testament studies who talked about the uh, Hexa, whatever it was, which included Joshua. So you had the first five books, And then you had Joshua included uh, in this. Um, I think the great German biblical scholar who was uh, big on that was Gerhard von Rad, who wrote all of the introduction to the New Testament. You know this joke about German scholarship. Um, An Englishman, an American, a Frenchman, and a German were asked to write a book about the elephant. And so the Englishman's book was titled Hunting Elephants in Africa. And the Frenchman's book was on the love life of the elephants. (laughs) And the American's book was on how to raise elephants for fun and profit. (laughs) And the German's book was a ten-volume introduction to the elephant. (laughs) So that's a lot of what German scholarship turned out to be in New Testament studies and still does. Uh, It's not unimportant, but there it is. So Joshua today is in Shechem. And he is speaking with the uh, Israelites who conquered that area, but also the peoples who had conquered it before them and are still there. And the issue is, are we going to have some kind of 
contentiousness or are we going to create a covenant with each other uh, moving forward? So this is a, a, a passage about eschatology understood as the, a hopeful future. What is it, what's the world going to be like if uh, we, we live lives congruent with God's purposes, both personally and, in this case, most importantly, corporately? So the people that were in place worshipped a god before the Israelites came in called El Barith. And they set up all the apparatus for worshiping the God and doing all of this sort of business. And the Israelites worshiped a God called Yahweh. And so in this text is a primitive liturgical fragment, which is a a, a liturgy about covenant. People coming together and deciding that they're going to be together in some form. And so Joshua goes sort of on and on and on about this. But finally, the the decision is that they are going, he said, you must choose. You must choose. Who are you going to worship? What are you going to do? Are you going to choose the right way or are you not going to do that? So the people in Shechem said, we, we will worship Yahweh. We'll do this. I'm glossing this a bit for sure. But the fact is, is that they decided this is what they're going to do. Now, why this is important is that in the uh, New Testament, uh, Peter is going to respond to Jesus. Uh, you have to choose today who you will serve. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And somebody reading that who has some knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures would say, gee, this is a lot like what Joshua said, right? It's part of the grand narrative. So when theologians and people in other aspects of of, uh, Christian study uh, listen to see this, read it, and say to themselves, you know, this has something to do with the eschatological future. The future of where all the great things are, are wound up and what's going to happen to the cosmos. And what does God have in mind and what is our part in the whole of this? If any. So we start from the book of Joshua and we see that uh, we are beginning the processes of understanding as the people move. What's going to happen in the Old Testament is that there will be a group of people who are called the Deuteronomists. You know, the book of Deuteronomy. And they're going to switch the emphasis from today in today's reading from Shechem as one of the holy places to saying that Jerusalem is the place where we understand how this is going to go down and what the eschatological future is going to be. So the other thing that it does for us is give us an idea of the plural understandings of how the people of Israel understood themselves as they move forward. In the Diocese of El Camino Real now, one of the the mottos that you'll see on the website is walking the way. That somehow uh, the process of moving in this direction gives us some, some hope for the future and some maybe 
deeper understanding of what the future might hold. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, we have, I noticed in the Roman lectionary, they permit you to uh, leave out the first part, or the second, whatever part it is, that is going to talk about us all uh, flying up and meeting one another in the air. You've seen those bumps, bumper stickers? At the rapture, this car will be driverless. <laughs> So they use texts like this, uh, I should say in an uncritical way, wouldn't you suggest? <laughs> uh, here's what Paul, what's on Paul's mind. Uh, we, we can say, I think, with some confidence that uh, p- parts of this passage have no utility for people living in 2014. We may understand the origin of them and we may understand what it is, but mainly most of us, at least in this faith tradition that I'm part of, uh, wouldn't point to this as very important. This is a key text for, uh, you know, I think like the Left Behind series. Do you realize how popular those books are? They've sold millions of copies. Millions. When I was in seminary, there was a guy named Hal Lindsey who wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth with the same kind of uh, interesting interpretations of the Revelation, book of Revelation. In any case, here's what's on Paul's mind here when he's writing. He believed and he taught that the second coming was going to happen in his lifetime, anytime soon, and that people needed to prepare for this. And then a pastoral situation on the ground developed, which was, my Aunt Cynthia, who is a believer, has died. Now, what's happened to her? Because he's not here yet. So how am I supposed to think about this? What am I going to do? I grieve their passing. I don't know what's going to happen. And so Paul in this passage uh, is at some pains to say, you don't need to grieve their passing. I do not grieve the passing of those that have been converted and have died. Because this is the reason, and this is what Reginald Fuller, who I trust, he, he was a great biblical scholar. Uh, this means that Jesus entered into the resurrection existence before us and will enable us to enter it too. So don't worry about the people who've already died. You're going to see them when all is put together. The, the sticking point for us is He's still not here. So how do we think about what's going to happen? And maybe we have to do a big rethink over at least the last five to eight hundred years in Western Christianity about how we understand what this second coming business is all about and where people go and come back and how do we understand it. 
And I've talked a lot about this in the last few months. And I accept what N.T. Wright says about this, and that is that the Bible says that one day all of us are going to be reunited together. And so the people that we love but no longer see, that we say are in heaven, I would prefer to say they are safe, resting in the arms of God in Christ. So we don't need to worry about them. You know, where are they now? But what we need to have confidence in, at least the biblical witness tells us, is that one day we're all going to be united with them. The living and the dead. So if we die and go, we'll be safe with God and we may see them there. Who knows? We can do all kinds of speculation. You know, you and I have to maintain a certain species of agnosticism about these things. And I, I, don't, I don't want to say that in terms of, of uh, advocating for a skeptical position. I'm merely saying that you and I cannot know these things. And most of us, you know, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. So you and I would wish to have certainty about all of the deep things of human existence. And we labor to do it. And we have crazy-ass ideas about how we ought to do it, if you pardon my French. Stupid. You know? And uh, th th people will believe anything as long as it gives them some kind of comfort about what, is the, what the future is going to hold and so forth. You know, one of the besetting sins of our age is that when something happens that is not good, we see evil abroad, we see disaster abroad, we see conflict abroad, we see all of this. One of the first things you see on the media is who's at fault? Who is to blame? And we seek it, and, and if we, we think we find it, then we're more satisfied because that's the case. Now, Paul today is saying, don't worry about all this and don't fret over this. You know, if you miss your mom, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my mother. She's been dead for, since 1973. You know, I wish I could tell her stuff now that I can't say except to the ether, right? So, th so those are things that are all part of our lives together as we think about it. But the Bible says, you know, we'll be, we're going to be all reunited together sometime. But we don't know that. When? Right? We don't know it. And maybe that's okay. Maybe. So, now, the wise and foolish virgins, or maidens. Uh, I think since Reginald Fuller wrote his commentary back in the uh, late 80s, biblical archaeology and a variety of other things has taught us a lot more about what a wedding was like in, in, in the ancient in Palestine, you know, in the time of Jesus. And I, I don't have that information, and I didn't include it in my sermon, but we may have even more detail about all this than we did before. 
But the main thing that we need to concern ourselves with in terms of interpreting this passage is what you always have to do when you interpret the parables of Jesus. You must, first of all, understand what Jesus meant when he spoke it. Then you have to know what the early church, and this could be the post-writing of the New Testament, but what the oral tradition was that grew up around this parable and how they understood it and interpreted it in allegorical terms for the most part. And then the final thing you have to say is, well, this is written by Matthew, so how did he redact this for his purposes? How did he edit it? So this threefold step is part of the way we understand what, what these things might mean. So one of the ways you can interpret this is to say that uh, Jesus, uh, his message was that the kingdom of God has dawned in his person and in his sayings, and those who respond to him and to what he's been saying, are going to be part of the kingdom of God if they express repentance and faith when it finally comes. Those who reject the message will find out their mistake too late. I was in uh, college and I had to take an introductory philosophy class. And we had a teacher named... Dr. Rodney Smith. And he would, he was a big, huge mountain of a guy. He'd come into class and he always carried two pairs of glasses. So we would have a weekly pop quiz. And I remember he would do, he, he goes, um, I wonder if anyone can tell me why Immanuel Kant felt compelled to answer David Hume. Mr. Brewer. I won't answer that, and I made a pig's breakfast of it at the class. But he's, that same class he was talking about, I can't remember what it was, but he said, told a story about a a uh, Scottish Presbyterian minister who was the pastor of a congregation in a small cottage, uh, Scottish village. And he had gone away to a conference of the Presbytery or something like this. And when he returned, uh, some of the more pious members of the congregation informed him that a number of the other congregants had breathed a sigh of relief when he had left town for a while and just kicked over the jams. So that Sunday he got into the pulpit and he said, I want to tell you all a story. One day, God was feeling in a specially benign mood. And he decided to look down into hell and see all the souls in hell. And here's Smith going. And so he looks down into hell and he sees all the souls writhing in the fire and brimstone and they look up and they see God and they say oh God we didn't know 
And he said, well, you know now. <laughs> Do you believe in a God like that? The reason I'm saying this is that there's something in this parable about being prepared and not prepared. Right? And maybe something about the fact that uh, uh, actions have consequences. You know? Now, remember the agnosticism that's accompanying what I'm saying about this, but I'm just... I'm just putting it out there at the group level. Now, the people who heard Jesus, and, and, and we now have a, a, a church of followers. Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven. And this community of faith is hearing this parable. Maybe some have started to write some of this down. So the groom who's late, that's not explained in the, in the story, is it? Why he's late. But he's late. Maybe that's kind of, he hasn't come yet, right? So the allegory about that is, well, he's not here. The uh, groom then is the son of man. His return is delayed. And the virgins, the bridesmaids, uh, are the good and the bad Christians. They're not prepared. This also speaks the parable itself about being alert. We're going to have a lot of that in Advent about being alert. alert. But, you know, if you were to take this seriously or literally, you'd have to be alert all the time. You know, and of course, it is important to pay attention and to, you know, do all this sort of stuff and to be ready. But, gosh, that kind of readiness is, you know, they all fell asleep. They were tired. They were sleepy. That's what happens to human beings. We get tired, you know. So in any case, that, that's what it is. Now, Matthew. Uh, by the way, in Matthew's gospel, there are more sayings of Jesus and stories about God's judgment than in the other gospels. He talks a lot, uh, relatively a lot more about that. And Jesus is speaking in Matthew's gospel about this. So we're going to listen for this for next week. This, the gospel we're going to read is about the talents. And the last gospel is going to be about the sheep and the goats. And these are parables of separation. And they're there to, uh, you know, infuse people with the idea that they need to be somehow alert as they, as they move forward. So Matthew's church is now, he's a, he's a former rabbi, he's in a synagogue that's 80% Gentile, and he understands that as a Jew, most of his religious confreres do not accept the Messiahship of Jesus. But there are a lot of other people who do. And so this is now full of Gentiles, or 80% of them are Gentiles. And so he's beginning to come to the conclusion that um, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins become the division between those who keep the commandments of Jesus. And remember, Matthew's idea is that Jesus represents the new Torah in his person. And so the Sermon on the Mount, in one sense, replaces the Ten Commandments or the Torah. And he in his embodies, and his community of followers embodies the community of love. Who say that the operative principle in the law is the love of God. And that we should treat one another always 
uh, with that as our first principle. So Matthew says, well, you know, those who keep the commandments are like the, the wise virgins, and uh, they obey the new lawgiver of the church, but those who fail to do what he commands are the ones who are going to, you know, this is completely inappropriate. My mother used to say, being behind the door when the brains got passed out. So, you know, you, you missed the boat, right? Now, again, I want to emphasize the, the agnosticism that I am uh, advocating here as well. Because I think for a long time, the Christian church, particularly in the West, has emphasized the whole idea that if you're a foolish virgin, you're going to go to a place of eternal punishment. That's your destiny. But it could also be you get what you want, right? When I was a kid, the Twilight Zone had an episode with uh, Sebastian Cabot. And uh, it was the story of a guy who wakes up in this absolutely, this luxurious hotel suite. And Sebastian Cabot comes out in a white suit. And he said, I hope you like your accommodations. I hope everything is okay for you. He he was killed in a car accident. So he's waking up and he's in this hotel. And he said, what would you like to do? He said, well, I love to gamble. So he said, we have a casino downstairs. You can go down there and gamble to your heart's content. So he goes down and he starts gambling and he always wins. And finally he just was... And he got everything he wanted, beautiful women, the food, constant. He said, uh, after the, towards the end of the episode, they were only 30 minutes long, he said, I'm tired of this. Send me to hell. <laughs> and Sebastian Cabot says, you're in hell. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. All right. So maybe the thing that we can say uh, is this is an example of the necessity to trust in God and not always our own way of uh, seeing the world, you know. Uh, Episcopalians are very flexible and broad about the deep things of Christian faith and belief. belief. But uh, it does not mean that we don't believe anything. It does not mean that. And so these difficult passages have something to do with saying, you know, maybe there's some aspect of this that that, that, uh, compels me now to make the right choices. You know, to cooperate with the divine initiative and not just believe that I'm floating down a stream of grace. So this week... um, Hold close to your heart and up to God your belief that he unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you, and that that invests in you certain responsibilities with regard to communicating that to other people, and the importance of of doing that in such a way as to uh, affect uh, things in the world that are congruent with God's purposes. Amen.